0: Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. When we think about the Renaissance, we think of a great flowering artistic creativity and intellectual innovation. We think about the beautiful paintings and sculptures of Michelangelo, the astute discoveries of Copernicus. Timeless plays of Shakespeare. Ironically, though, this great creative flowering was spurred by men who were educated under a system that, by our modern lights, can seem rather rigid and rote. My guest today unpacks this seeming paradox. His name is Scott Newstock, and he's a professor of English and the author of How to Think Like Shakespeare Lessons from a Renaissance Education, in which he uses the bard as a jumping off point to explore broader insights into matters of the mind. We begin a conversation with the ways Scott thinks our modern educational system is lacking and how students approach learning has changed over the years. We then discuss how the Renaissance model of education with its emphasis on language and verbal fluency provides possibilities for strengthening our reading, writing, speaking, and thinking skills and making the refinement a lifelong habit. We delve into how artists and thinkers of the Renaissance thought about originality differently than we do and how they believe that imitating and even copying the work of others can actually help you find your own voice. And we discuss how Shakespeare's sonnets demonstrate the way in which constraints can counterintuitively enable creativity. And we enter conversation with how you can incorporate Renaissance thinking into your day-to-day life. After the show over, check out our show notes at aomis renaissance thinking. Scott joins me now via clearcast.io. All right, Scott Newstock, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Brett. So you got a book called How to Think Like Shakespeare, Lessons from a Renaissance Education. This is a really fun book. You take a look back at the education that William Shakespeare likely got and how that education shaped his thinking and his worldview and lessons and insights we can take from that for us modern folks. And you begin the book sort of, I don't know, bemoaning or sort of criticizing our education system we have today. You are an educator yourself. You teach. As a teacher, from where you're standing, what do you see... What are we lacking in our education? Like, what do you think? Where our modern education system falls short?
1: Well, you know, I should begin with a caveat that every teacher thinks that things were better in a previous <laughs> generation when they were coming up through the school system. So, I'm, I'm cautious about about uh, too much bemoaning. But I, I do think I, I do think I'm not alone in saying that a kind of pivot that we've had in the last couple of decades, at least in the United States educational system, and from what I hear from colleagues abroad, I think this is a global phenomenon is is a pivot to, I don't know, a kind of form of education that's fixated on testing and the kind of poor dynamics that emerge from a fixation on tex- testing, which leads often to teaching to the test or feeling like you're just doing this for the sake of doing it so you can pass the test to get the, to the next level rather than thinking about this education as worthy unto itself and exciting and valuable and something that will, in the long run, contribute to your human flourishing and your independence of thought and autonomy as a human being. So those are, I know those are kind of grandiose and ambitious goals, but they are longstanding good goals. And they're, I think, goals that w- we would all like to subscribe to as citizens in a flourishing democracy. So I i guess there there are a number of things that I think have led to that transition or that pivot in the last couple of decades to fixating more on short-term goals or short-term ends, which unfortunately lead to kind of cutting off the long-term or the more ambitious uh, visions of education that, again, I think many of us would would agree to if, if you articulated them in that way. So you're a college professor, right? That's right. Though I do also teach at multiple different levels, whether I'm tutoring in grade schools or giving visiting lectures in high schools or teaching in prison. So I, I teach a, a wide range of audiences, but yes, my, my formal position is teaching at the post secondary level.
0: Well, well I'm curious what how have you seen students change on a this is going to be hard to measure because this is sort of subjective mm-hmm. but a qualitative measure right as you've seen students who've gone through this process they've they've gone through the public education system where there's been an emphasis on standardized testing and getting AP scores and mm-hmm. you know SA, studying for the SAT where that's been the focus have you seen like how students approach learning? Has, has that changed or their approach towards thinking? Has, have you seen that change in the classroom when you interact with them?
1: I, th- I think it has. I, I think one way I would isolate that transition would be in the ways in which I think students are kind of primed to receive feedback now and, and expect feedback in what, what strike me is kind of very fragmentary forms of evaluation. I recall not having heard the word rubric before, I don't know, maybe a decade or so ago, and maybe that just dates me in a way, but the the sense of breaking down a well-written essay into kind of fragmentary components of you got this many points on this part and this many points on this part, rather than, you know, the whole worked or the whole didn't work for all kinds of complicated, nuanced, qualitative reasons. That that to me seems like a new thing. And I think I sense some student frustration in wanting something as complicated and wonderful as, as writing and articulating yourself well, wanting that to be broken down into into little component bits that if you just kind of go through the checklist and you do all these things, then you have an A rather than, well, there's there's lots of things you need to do to be a good writer. That includes reading widely, and that includes imitating other writers, and includes being in conversation with other people, and working on good models, and revising, and all kinds of things that are lifelong processes that that really don't boil down to a checklist of a of a rubric or a, a series of discrete tasks. So, I think that's probably the biggest transition that I've noticed in terms of the teaching of writing and and reading is that that fragmentary sense of these are the things that you should do in order to get the good grade rather than writing is an art and it's a wonderful craft and it's a it's a thing that humans have struggled with for millennia. And I think that's one big transition that I've seen, you know, another thing is just generational and technological, I remember going to college 30 years ago now and really enjoying the sense of it being a space away from the world in which I had grown up, in part because we didn't have cell phones. And now that it's possible to be talking to your parents or your friends from back home up until the minute that class starts and at the minute that class ends, there's the, that space away or that that kind of interval of time or that interval of space doesn't exist in the same way. In some ways college is just kind of continuous with all the rest of your life. And I, I think that's a loss for for everyone that's involved that there was there was something rich about having a space for thinking that's that's away from your origins and gives you perspective on that and distance on that origin.
0: So it sounds like for you, education in its ideal form, it's about basically training individuals how to think, but like think openly, not in like very binary black and white ways, but I don't know how you think fluidly, basically.
1: Yeah. Yes. I think fluidly is, is a good word. I think, you know, dynamically is another good work word, reflexively, open-endedly. Those are all, all terms that I, I think are, are accurate to what we've, what we value about good thinkers and, and models that we aspire towards. That's not the same thing as telling you what to think. In some ways, it's it's trying to model for you different forms of thinking so that you can stretch your mind and stretch your own capacities to to become your best self and become the best thinker that you possibly could be.
0: And it's like, I mean, this kind of might sound sort of vague, but it's sort of it's soul enriching too. Like there's something about thinking well that feels good. Like you feel like you become a better person. Uh, you know, so there's a, you're talking about that sort of compartmentalized thinking that's kind of prevalent in young students today. I think there was an article here. remember it was an NPR interview I was listening to, but it was this poet. Her work is used on standardized tests. Yes. In Texas. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You heard this. So like, yeah, she was getting mm-hmm. emails from teachers saying, what is, what is your, Poetry mean here's the answers that the the test tape, right. the test maker say is and she's this poet is like I would
1: fail this test like <laughs> right. that's not yes. what I
0: meant. Do you know about this? Tell us. I mean, if you know about this, oh, tell
1: absolutely. Me. No, it, you're, you've pinpointed it. She she wrote an op-ed about it, expressing her frustration, feeling like the way that poem was being taught has very little with the experience of composing and. And making and creating and responding to that poem from her perspective. So again, it's some, it's, it's a little bit like that checklist sense of how, how could you break this down into the fragmentary? I don't know, you know, structure, diction and tone, or what's the meaning behind these words? Rather than what she was trying to do was to create a complex verbal experience, a complex verbal artifact that is not, you know, determined in a simple, kind of standardized test true false or abc response format. So I think again you you know you're talking about soul formation or the or the pleasure of of thinking itself. That's part of what what I love about teaching and what I love about learning and what I love about reading and writing and engaging with other minds. And that doesn't fit very well in that kind of assessment driven format for for some good reasons and some, for some very bad reasons.
0: All right, so if education in its ideal form is all about learning how to think well, learning the habits of thinking well, why do you think Shakespeare in his world, the Renaissance world that he grew up in, is a good model for learning how to think? Maybe not the best, but it's a good model.
1: Right, no, it's not the only model, but it is a a good one in part. I mean, you can just look to the many wonderful writers that emerged out of that era, the many wonderful... Thinkers that emerged in other disciplines and really even founded fields of knowledge that we we still study today, calculus and physiology and global economic theory or international law or even the philosophy of consciousness itself. Those all emerged from what looks to us in retrospect like a incredibly rigid education, but in some, I think, fascinating and paradoxical ways, some of the rigidity of that educational training system led to an enormous flowering of creativity and human achievement. It was, it was an educational system that was incredibly invested in the verbal arts. There was an emphasis on becoming the most fluent writer you could possibly be through all kinds of strategies ac- across a long period of time. And that's, I think it's just based on the insight that as humans, we use language to articulate all kinds of complicated things and The better you can articulate that complexity, the more capable you will be of engaging with the world as a citizen, as a political agent, as a member of a family, as a business person, whatever it is, language is our vehicle for interacting with the world and expressing complexity. So why not devote incredible resources to refining language? Now, the language that they were working on across Europe in this era was not their indigenous languages or their native vernacular languages that was the secondary language of latin that was the the international language of european pedagogy at this time but there's remarkable consequences from that focus on a second language as well it's it if you've ever studied a second language or struggled with a second or third language you know it actually working on that other language helps you refine your primary language, that thinking in another language helps you become more fluent in your own language because you're thinking through the complexity of expressing yourself in another verbal register. So one of the weird byproducts of that language system, that educational system that was fixated on fluency in Latin was it created great writers in French and great writers in Italian and great writers in English because of that that amazing kind of bilingual flexibility that was that was mandated by the system.
0: So big picture, how would you describe Shakespearean thought? Like when we look at his work, particularly his plays, how do you see his thinking manifest itself?
1: Sure. Clearly, it's immensely invested in the complexity of dialogue. And the educational system encouraged that in all kinds of remarkable ways. And But it plays out on stage with a, a consistent investment in the dynamics of speaking Characters speaking beings interacting with each other at, at a high level of verbal facility that that gives us pleasure to read and it gives us pleasure to witness as an audience because you're watching amazingly articulate human beings interacting with each other and, and pressing each other to refine their thought so that I think that dialogic that that's just a that's just a, a raw commitment of drama but it's something that's clearly manifested through shakespeare's mind is that the commitment to thinking through things through multiple perspectives i think it's also in that sense anti-doctrinal it's not it's not committed to making an argument for a single point. You know, we don't have manifestos from Shakespeare or political treatises or theological treatises. We have plays and we have poems which are multifaceted and they're giving voice to kind of an entire chorus of characters coming at a problem or coming at a quandary from multiple perspectives. I think that that seems to me Shakespearean at its heart. And then I think another characteristic of Shakespearean thinking is that commitment to finding the right words and you, you see this even in soliloquies where a character will kind of ponder the best way to say the thing that they want to say, and they'll they'll tease out different forms of saying that thing, or they'll they'll lean into a single word. So we have great examples of, say, a character like Falstaff pondering the intonations of the word honor. What's honor? What do we really mean when we say, honor? What are the, all the kinds of contexts we use when we use that word honor? Or a character like Edmund and King Lear talking about the word bastardy. What do we mean when we say bastard? What's really at stake in that word? What are the social contexts of that word? Why do we actually use that word? What's the What are the legal ramifications of that word? Or even you know my, some of my favorite instances of this kind of tinkering with language occur when a character says something like, they say a word and then they revise the phrasing of that word. So Richard II has a meditation on death where he says we should think of a little grave, and then he kind of pauses and says, a little, little grave. Or when Prospero in The Tempest talks about a vision kind of moving off into air, and then he stops himself and says, into thin air. So you see that the mind that's always tinkering with refining words to say it in just the right way, that that seems to me shakespearean thinking at heart in addition to the anti-doctrinal and the dialogic commitment that is at the heart of the plays
0: and another aspect of shakespearean thought that at least i have fun with when i'm reading it is like it is fun to read because he's often using puns and double entendres, like absolutely and you have to like okay he says that but like he didn't mean that like he meant something else and you have to really think about it and it makes that Makes reading it and listening to his
1: plays a lot of fun. Oh, it's enormous fun! I, I absolutely agree. I mean, there's the sense of the malleability of language, and isn't it wonderful that the same word can mean three different things? Or you can hear that word one way, and I mistake the word in a different direction, and then suddenly we have a debate between us, or we have some dissent between the two of us. And there's even a there's even some studies that have been done with kind of the cognitive neuroscience where they will re, you will read a passage from Shakespeare where there is some of that punning going on or that slippage in meaning between words and different areas of the brain seem to light up in response to that there's a kind of pleasure circuit that goes off by thinking that oh we normally say this in this way but if you just steer it a little bit into a different direction or lean into the intonation of that word you realize wow it actually it explodes in a different direction as well so there's there's enormous pleasure in that. It's a That's not unique to Shakespeare, of course, but it's certainly at, at his core that he has a, a deep pleasure in the flexibility of language.
0: So an aspect of Shakespearean thought in that sort of Renaissance worldview that you bring up and bring to light to readers is that for them, thinking and writing could be seen as a craft. Now, now for us, we often think when we hear the word craftsman or craft, we think of technical, mechanical things like a carpenter or a mechanic, but for Shakespeare, like he's he thought of his like work with words, like he thinking was actually making. How do you see that show up in his work and his thinking?
1: Well, I mean, in some ways, there's just the practical sense that the 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 theater in which he worked was enormously collaborative, and it involved a, a number of people working together on creating elaborate dramatical works that sold well to those audiences at that moment. So there's there's that sense of craft as a as a collective endeavor that it's it's not something that you you just do alone but you're you're part of a longer term community of previous creators and your contemporary creators and the audience with which you're trying to engage. That seems to me to be at the heart of craft whether it's woodworking or whether it's wordworking that you are you are not alone in making this thing and you're you're part of a kind of continuity of practitioners who have have worked on this thing. So again, that's true on the, the practical level of how the theater worked in his era. And it's also true in the kind of more abstract sense of being in conversation with previous makers and previous creators. So we have a number of writers in this era who are very explicit about saying, I feel like writing is a version of entering a conversation with past writers who I'm reading and I'm responding to them and they're responding to me. So the classic example of this is Niccolo Machiavelli describes going into his study at the end of the day, putting on his special study robe and feeling like he is in conversation with generations of hundreds of years of other thinkers who preceded him. And that sense of that craft of thought is is like an ongoing conversation. You're not the first person to have made a wooden bucket, and you're not the first person to have made a sentence, and you can learn things from other people who made wooden objects before you, and you can learn things from other people who made sentences before you, and ultimately, you can refine your work or refine your craft and make a sentence that's suitable for you at this particular moment that no one else has made before in that way, even though it's drawing upon all that heritage and all that tradition of previous writers, just like a woodworker draws upon the previous heritage, but also make something new for this moment with this set of tools.
0: No, Matthew Crawford makes that point. He's that. Yes. Yeah, in in his book, The World Beyond Your Head, that craftsmanship... To be an original, and we can talk about sort of Shakespearean originality in a bit, but creativity, innovation requires you to be embedded in a tradition. And he talks about with with the this in his book "World Beyond Its Head" with organ makers. There's like these people who make organs and renovate organs, and they're very deeply embedded in how people did it hundreds of years ago. But at the same time they're able to make innovations. But those innovations mean something because they are deeply embedded in that tradition
1: of organ making. Absolutely. And I, I love that Crawford book and it and you're right to pinpoint that a lot of the language I'm using about craft derives from his meditations on, on the same. And that language of embeddedness is perfect. It's the sense of, it's, I'm not the first person to have made this thing. I'm not making anything from scratch. But that doesn't mean that I I lack creativity or I lack innovation. And I think... That's one of the, the, the kind of sets of binaries that I'm trying to undo with the book is to s- point out that being original is not the opposite of working within a tradition. And conversely, benefiting from a tradition or being embedded within a tradition does not stifle your creativity or your originality. It, in fact, it enables it in a really wonderful way. There's There's a continuity there that's part of that conversation through time rather than thinking of those things as being in opposition to one another. So I think that that sense of embeddedness is a perfect word to describe what's going on when you are a writer or a thinker or a reader, that those things are not in opposition to one another, but they're mutually productive. They're mutually enriching.
0: We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. And now back to the show. So when you're talking to your students about you know, trying to subtly show them that they can be a craftsman with their work, how how do you do that? Like, what does that look like? How do you how can writers and thinkers take a more craftsman like approach
1: to their writing and thinking and reading? There's one you know basic way that I do it, which is we do imitation in in my classes old old school imitation where I ask students to imitate the sound of this particular writer or imitate the form of this particular writer. That's a deeply Renaissance practice at heart. It's it's based on the premise that when you are able to emulate interesting, challenging models, it helps you stretch your own forms of creativity rather than thinking that you create something from nothing. You're actually inspired in part by engaging with another mind who struggled with this same task before you. So the great example of this from the American tradition is Benjamin Franklin, who had to leave school at an early age because his brother was making him work for him. And so Franklin felt frustrated by his own lack of eloquence, his own lack of capacity in writing. And one of the things that he did to improve his facility in writing was to take copies of The Spectator, an 18th century English periodical that had wonderful essays that were published on a a weekly, monthly basis. And to read an essay that he admired, put the essay aside, and then try to reconstruct The moves of that, of that essay. In some ways, it's almost, this is Crawford-like as well. One of the things that you're doing is you're trying to get under the hood of the machine and figure out how this thing works to kind of get into the inside workings of this verbal artifact or this creation, see how it moves, see how it functions, see, see what's successful, what's not successful, and then ultimately, Internalize those practices as you're, as you're emulating them in order to become a more fluent writer and a more compelling thinker yourself. So we do that on a, on a basic level in terms of imitating models, but we also do it on the, the larger level of trying to think our way into, you know, what's going on here in this thing that we're reading? Why is, why would a writer express this in this way? Are there other ways that they could have expressed this? And with Shakespeare, we're, we're lucky because about half of the plays we have both Chordal versions of the plays, which are the paperbacks that would have been published during his lifetime, and the hardcover collected work that was published after he died. So we can often compare a single line or a single phrase or speech across two different versions and think about the dynamics of why is this one different than this one? This this phrase is just slightly different, but it, it changes our reading of the entire speech because of that, that one variable word. So we, we I, I try to kind of stage the writers that we read as writers in process or writers that are themselves struggling with articulating what they want to do and then i hope that that's a, a a model for the students themselves as they're thinking their way into how do i articulate myself as best as i can
0: i want to mind this vein here about uh, of originality and in using tradition to become original because we think of shakespeare as an original there's like no one like him before and there's no one like him after but it, as you point out in the book, if you look at his work, you discovered that he copied, and sometimes, you know, even a lot of thinker writers did this. They just outline, just plagiarized stuff. But for them, that that, that doesn't jive with our modern idea of originality. Originality is like, you just come up with something completely new. Mm -hmm. But for the Renaissance thinker like Shakespeare, like original, that's not what originality was. So what, walk us through like our difference of how we think of originality and how Shakespeare and his thinkers may have thought of originality, and how that there like that Renaissance Shakespearean idea of originality can actually help you become more original.
1: <laughs> There's a lot going yeah, on there. No, it, it it sounds like a kind of looping paradox, but I think if you if you dig your way into it, we have we have many examples of of creative human beings across all kinds of endeavors who became as accomplished as they were not by starting from scratch, but rather by imitating or emulating figures whom they admired. So I think one of the easiest ways for us to get our head around this is to think about the physical arts. So whether that's playing a musical instrument or performing high-level dance or even even doing sport, I think we're very quick to acknowledge that in those physical endeavors, imitation at early as well as late levels of performance is, is immensely productive. So think about a kid imitating a swing of their favorite baseball player and doing that over and over again until some of those moves become internalized as part of their own repertory of moves that they can make when they ultimately become a professional player. Whatever, whatever the sport or whatever the bodily function, it, it's partly because you're looking up to someone who does this thing really well that you are able to do that thing well eventually by imitating them. And that, that sense that we have of creativity as emerging from, I think, a kind of naive version of originality comes about in the mid 1700s, early 1800s, where you are yearning for saying something that's never been said before. But it's a, it's a kind of an odd thing because it contradicts, again, I think what most of us experience as how originality actually works that, that there's an immense debt to the past. And no one really ever escapes it. As Ralph Waldo Emerson says, even the, the originals are not original, that there's an imitation model and suggestion to the archangels if we if we know their history. So on a, on a practical level, how does this work? It's it's thinking of yourself again in, in embedded or in, in continuity with a, a series of previous creators within your field, but that doesn't mean that you are making up something from scratch. The the original part is the way you are reconfiguring the past for the present moment. So there's a great figure, a great image that the 16th century writer, contemporary of Shakespeare, Michel de Montaigne, brings up, which is actually a very old classical image of making something is like the way a bee goes from flower to flower. It picks up the pollen and the nectar and brings it back to the hive and makes something new, which is the honey. And Montaigne, he's going back to a number of Roman and Greek authors, which is kind of a joke itself because he himself is being like the bee in terms of picking up this image of the bee. But Montaigne is emphasizing that it's the it's the making of the honey that's the new thing. That's the original thing. It's the blending of of your inspiration and your sources and your contemporary world that is the new thing. But the new thing is not the the nectar and the pollen itself. The new thing is the recombination that's, in, in a way, you've digested this thing or it's gone through your guts and you've made it your own. That's that's the original thing. All right,
0: so the way you do this, uh, read widely if you're a writer. Do some of the exercises you talked about earlier. You know, Say you're going to write this from perspective of Shakespeare, like how Shakespeare would write this essay. I mean, you could even do, and you talk about this in the book, we've written about this on our website, copy work, where you just like, you basically just, like Hunter S. Thompson did this. Like he yep, wrote yep. The Great Gatsby, he typed it out because he just wanted to know what it felt like. Yeah, to write a great novel, and like Jack London did this with uh, Stevenson. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a tradition of you just you just copy it, and then you you start to you start internalizing those habits. But that, as you said, somewhere along the line of that alchemy, you start adding in your own little flair to it.
1: Yeah, I mean Stevenson recommends it as well. There, there, are, we have a number of examples of creators who say. You know, Judd Apatow did that early as well. He would just transcribe Saturday Night Live episodes, just trying to get the feeling of the timing of the of the skits, and the sense is that you you're kind of putting yourself in the subject position of another creator and trying to think through, as you said with the Hunter S. Thompson. You know, what does it feel like to write like that? And it doesn't mean that you that you have to write like that, but it it is helpful. It is productive to go through that that process of doing something that's uncomfortable for you. Again, to use the the bodily analogy, I, I ran track in college and I remember our coach having us do all kinds of odd running exercises for a warm-up where we would we would run backwards and we would run kind of sideways scissor steps and we would skip and kick our legs in all kinds of odd ways. And the, the point wasn't that we would ever do that in a race, but the point was we were kind of stretching ourselves in all kinds of other directions. So that way when we did come back to our natural gait or our, our native kind of bodily motion that we would be better at it for having stretched ourselves in all those other other directions so yeah i do i will encourage students to say transcribe this poem but write it out as if you are writing it yourself for the first time and ask ask yourself why would i say from fairest creatures we desire increase that's a little weird i could have said we desire increase from fairest creatures so why would i invert the structure of that sentence and why do we why do we like beautiful creatures to reproduce? And then the next line starts to answer that question that you posed in the first line. So again, seeing seeing writing as a form of thinking or as a form of human expression rather than I don't know, frankly, seeing it as something that you just kind of brutally extract meaning from for the multiple choice question that you have to answer for the quiz.
0: So I mean thinking requires and you talked about this earlier, sort of Shakespeare's education. So oftentimes wrote Exercises and it, they they seem boring and mind numbing and they just but there's there's a trick there there's something to it it'll help you actually internalize this stuff.
1: Yeah, I mean, here's one of the rote things that was recommended early in the 16th century by Erasmus, and it was adopted by educators across Europe, and it's, it's still used by artists to this day. It's what something as wrote as transcribing phrases and quotations that you hear from singers and thinkers and politicians and writers whom you admire. Just making a notebook of that, that sounds really basic. That sounds even almost remedial. But we know that in many cases, we have fantastic examples of writers who kind of created that own personal archive of great phrasing and great thoughts and great thinkers whom they admired. And then that at some point that became a kind of a trove for their own creation when they were later making a speech or later drafting a letter or producing an essay or or creating a new manifesto that they had absorbed those words and thoughts of others that helped them become their best, most articulate selves. So that is rote in the sense of, you know, it, it doesn't sound like a form of creativity if I tell you to sit down and write other people's words down. But in the long run, it does end up helping you articulate yourself in the best possible way. So that's that's one example of that rote process, the imitation that we were talking about earlier fits along those lines. The Ben Franklin experience of trying to reconstruct what someone else has said using their words, you're you're trying to think your way into a different voice. And again, the pedagogy in this period would have encouraged that, you know, a little 8-year-old boy from Stratford would have been asked to imagine himself as a widow from the trojan war. Now, that's that's distant in time, that's different distant in in gender, that's distant in nation and all kinds of circumstances, but that's an that's an amazing exercise to kind of stretch yourself into a different different subject position. And we I have students who've done this with kind of writing back to a shakespearean character or writing in the voice of a of a new character that they've added to the play that they've, they've kind of inserted themselves into the dialogue there. And it's, it's fun and it's productive and it's, it's a, it's a great way to stretch your mind. All right. So rote exor- wrote exercises can be fun. You can make them fun. I think so. I, I think, I think, I think they can be, I think that if you go into them in the spirit of this is part of the creative process and rather than thinking of this, this is something that I have to do, but actually this, this is one of the things that led to this great thing that I'm reading in the first place. And it could lead to me in all kinds of unexpected directions.
0: So you mentioned earlier, one sort of way of Shakespearean thinking you see show up in his plays is this dialogue, conversation. How do you think conversation can help with an education or help us learn?
1: Well, it's, you know, there's a great phrase from W. H. Auden where he talks about reading as breaking bread with the dead, or there's a a writer who was contemporaneous to Shakespeare who called reading a kind of conversation with the deceased where you, you listen to the dead with your eyes. I think it's, it's remarkable that we have that capacity to engage with previous generations who have entirely different life experiences from us in, in all kinds of unimaginable ways. And yet they still speak to us. Across time, we have these. We have a great example of this in James Baldwin discussing reading 19th century Russian novelists and thinking that you know what do they have to say to me? But in fact, wow, they they have an amazing way to articulate human suffering and responses to human suffering that are not dissimilar to my own frustrated attempts to articulate human suffering and responses to human suffering. So, I think the more you can imagine, I imagine is even the wrong word. The more you can recognize that reading is a form of conversation and and writing is a form of conversation, the more you feel like you're an active participant in an ongoing larger conversation of intellectual history rather than, again, I think one of the frustrations I feel with uh, students coming into college from their high school experiences is that I don't think they feel empowered in that way that they are in conversation with uh, a larger intellectual tradition that it seems like, again, it's more that I need to read this thing in order to pass this quiz or to pass this exam, but the writing itself that they're reading seems like it's so abstracted from why any human being would have written it in the first place. It like Going back to your Texas poet, that poet did not write that poem to be on that exam. She wrote it for all kinds of complicated reasons that she might not even understand herself fully, but but the task was not to create an object that would be kind of dissected in this way. The task was to create an object that was, that was legible to other human beings in different spaces and in, in different moments in time. So the pedagogy in this period really emphasized that sense of conversation by placing the students in conversation with writers from all kinds of other eras and all kinds of other traditions. And I think that's a that's just a healthy thing for all, for all human beings to do as much as possible.
0: And I think this idea that students, you feel like students are, don't feel empowered to take part in a conversation contributes to this dynamic. I think everyone's experience that they've been to college or in a high school where the teacher is trying to get a discussion going. And it's like, oh, the teacher throws out a question and no one says anything. Because I maybe they think well there's there's a right answer mm-hmm. I don't know what the right answer is so I'm not going to say anything because so I'll look stupid but I'm sure you genuinely you, you throw a question out there because you're you're trying to get a conversation going and see where it goes
1: yeah I think those the best questions there are live questions there you know I don't really know why this word works this way in this particular speech and I I'm eager to hear what they have to say and. Every class, I, this is a cliche, but every class that I have, I learn something new, I see something that I had not seen before, I hear something that I had not not heard before, and that's one of the many, many pleasures of teaching. And I, th- I think you're right, It's if, if it feels to the student that the question is thrown out there for, you know, what color am I thinking of, or what number do I have in my head, that's that's not a fun question to to answer, and it doesn't feel empowering. But But the more you can stage... Education and this, this form of reading as, as an ongoing conversation, the more I think you enable everybody to feel like they're participating in that. There's a, there's a great metaphor for conversation that Kenneth Burke, one of my intellectual heroes, comes up with, which is that intellectual history is like a, a parlor conversation. You, you arrive late. The conversation's been going on before you arrived. You don't really know what's going on when you first walk into the room. People are chatting and, but eventually you kind of figure out what's at stake in the, argument and ultimately you start to make your own claims and someone comes to your defense and someone else knocks you down and you kind of leave in a heated moment and the conversation still goes on after your departure. You're not the first person to have had that conversation and you're not the last person to have had that conversation. In some ways that's very much like the model of the Socratic-Platonic dialogues where they almost always start in the middle of a conversation. Someone walks in and says, hey, what are you talking about? And like, oh, well, this guy here thinks he knows what justice is. Well, what do you mean about justice? Well, I think justice means this. On the other hand, he thinks this, and it gets heated, and then it ends inconclusively. And that that might be frustrating if you're used to feeling like you want to be told the answers. But if you want to engage in intellectual exchange, that really is the model of how it works.
0: Yeah, I like when things end incon-
1: inconclusively.
0: Because <laughs> then you can pick it up later on. Like I, I, have, I've had, I love those conversations where you have your with your friends where it just goes around in circles and then you kind of feel like you're getting somewhere with it, but then you don't. And then you're like, well, we'll pick this up next time we convene together. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. And a good, a good class feels like that too.
0: Yeah, I, 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 I would say that's right. I, the college classes that I enjoyed were like that. You looked forward to going to, to class because then you could talk about the stuff you were chewing on from the last class. Mm -hmm. So besides writing plays, something else Shakespeare is famous for, I think gets overlooked oftentimes, is that he wrote poems, he wrote sonnets, he made the sonnet a thing. For those who aren't familiar with sonnets, what makes a sonnet a sonnet? And then um, how do you think a sonnet can spur creativity?
1: Sure. So a sonnet initially means something like a little sound or a little song, but eventually the form becomes stabilized as a 14-line unit of poetry. Though even that, once I say that, I have to start qualifying that because there are 15-line sonnets and there are 12-line sonnets and there are 28-line sonnets and seven-line sonnets. So already, in some ways, the very abstract notion of the form is is playing with the boundaries of of attending to the form or ignoring the form or stretching the form or rebelling against the form. But the form is a 14-line poem. And in some ways, that's about as arbitrary as you could get. I could... I could say it's a. you should write a 27-line poem or you should write a 5-line poem, but it settles into this 14-line unit, and then it's invented in Italy, refined in Italy and across Europe, and then translated into British writing in the 16th century. So by the time Shakespeare's writing sonnets, he is writing in a very old form in fact th- there had been a kind of fad for sonnets about a decade before he wrote sonnets and they were out of date by the time that he was composing his sonnet sequence so in in some ways this invites all of these larger conversations about what is literary form what are literary constraints how are constraints enabling how do you revive a tired form a tired genre you know this is like the equivalent of in cinema history, once once film noir kind of has its day in the 1940s and 50s, and then it gets exhausted, how do you revive film noir in the 70s, 80s, and up until this day? So, you know, in Shakespeare's case, what's the form that he's inherited? He's inherited this 14-line form. The poems were often about a man idealizing a, an unattainable woman, a, a female beloved object. How does he revived that form. One of the ways he revives it is by not having the sonnets, the first 126 sonnets that he writes addressed to a female. They're addressed to a younger male friend who he's encouraging to get married. That's already, he's he's kind of taking the the form in a new direction. That's not something that many other writers had done before him. So this, you, you feel like the, the more you read any writer and you realize who they're responding to, the more you see their innovation in Inheriting a form and then making it original or making it new for their moment or renewing it for their particular moment.
0: And then another aspect of the sonnet is that there's a constraint to it. You know, as you said, there's caveats. There's like seven line sonnets, five line sonnets, but there's also, but like ideally, you, you're, there's a number of lines you're you're limited to, and you, people might see that. Well, that's just not going to that constraint is going to not allow me to be creative. But as you make the case, it can actually make you
1: more creative because you have to work within those constraints. Think about the way that sports have constraints, that we say this game should last for 60 minutes or this game should last for nine innings. And that's artificial and it's arbitrary and maybe it was invented in the 19th century, but we still do it today because that's the constraint. How, how well can you play within nine innings or within 60 minutes? Or if you think about those cooking shows where you're given a set of five ingredients and you're given a time limit, Of course, you could make something different if you had different ingredients or if you had a different time limit. But the the idea is that how well can you play within the constraints that we have given you? What marvelous dishes can you create, given that I say, these are your five ingredients, these are your tools you can use, and this is your team. Go. So the sonnet is kind of like that. What what can you do in 14 lines? Well, you can do anything, really. And what can you do within a very tight kind of rhyme scheme? It, It really enables all kinds of ingenuity in terms of... Working within those forms in order to make new things that were unexpected before. In some ways, the formlessness, if I said, write a poem of any length that you want about any topic that you want, in some ways, that's, that's the paralyzing thing. It's almost more helpful if I say, write a 14 line poem or if, you know, on a more practical level, if I told my students, write a paper about any topic, any length, I don't care. That, that would be stultifying. But if I say, I want you to write the best paper you can that's only 300 words long about this one word, that's constraining, but all kinds of wonderful things emerge from that constraint.
0: And yeah, I think people have seen that how constraints can help in other facets of life besides... Thinking, reading, writing—like in businesses. Typically, businesses who have to bootstrap and figure out, mm-hmm. well, how can I get this thing going with my limited budget—they come up with some creative solutions. Compared to like the VC that has millions of dollars, so much money they and just got—they got, they got to blow it on ping pong tables
1: and massages. yeah, they end up burning burning through it. I mean, this is not to this is not to glorify you know impoverished conditions, but it is it is the case that all kinds of ingenuity emerges from. Working creatively within limited constraints and and with limited resources, and we have we have numerous examples of people doing amazing things with with limited resources that are kind of, as you said, the opposite of of burning through millions of dollars. Because in some ways, you don't have a constraint that that would have been more productive for you.
0: Yeah, I mean, th- going back to thinking about writers who did this, like when they first started, like Stephen King talks about. When he was first starting to write, it was just like he was in his cramped kitchen. Uh, his was in the laundry room. Yeah, even, the or, laundry like room. <laughs> and he was writing the stuff. And I feel like, it, and he was writing great stuff. But I feel like a lot of people like, I'm going to be a writer. I, I got to get a, a writing cabin. And I got to have <laughs> you know, my pens and paper and lots of time. And Stephen King would say like, no, that's ridiculous. If
1: you're going to write, just write. You got to work with what you got. Yeah, we have beautiful examples of you know Emily Dickinson writing on the back of an envelope and a and a, just little scraps of paper here and there and and in some ways those small units of paper constrained her but they also liberated her in other in other really remarkable ways. All right, so
0: this is a, we've had like a, a wide ranging I'd say Shakespearean conversation. We've talked about tradition craftsmanship. We've talked about conversation. We've talked about constraints. I'm curious. I mean, this you're a college professor, the people you work with are they're young people in college trying and you're trying to shape those minds. What about people who you know college, they're done with college, they're in a career, but they still they miss that life of the mind and they want to kind of get a taste of that college experience again, where you're speaking, you're you're talking to friends two o'clock in the morning about some platonic dialogue or piece of literature. How can like those people have, you know, start thinking Shakespearean in their day-to-day life?
1: Well, I mean, you know that there there many people have their own ongoing reading groups. There, there are also continuing education courses at many colleges and many community colleges across the country. I mean, it, it, basically, I would say work backwards from thinking about the kinds of environments that you either have enjoyed or or are yearning for and feel like you're lacking in your life and then find ways to construct those communities. So what what does that look like? Like-minded other people who are eager to read things along with others and be in conversation about them. So again, that could that's can be as informal as a reading group or something that's organized online to something that's more formally structured through a continuing education course at a at a local university. But I think the the idea is, you know, what what are the conditions that would allow those kinds of conversations to flourish or those kinds of conversations to take Place In some ways, they're really basic. Like you need time and you need space and you need a kind of forum or a platform that will allow those conversations, the time and space to unfold. Sometimes it means having someone else that has done the reading before and, and can help spur that conversation. But sometimes it's just peer to peer and it's lateral and it doesn't need a kind of larger organizing principle or, or a teacher figure to, co- to come in there. But one thing I do recommend really is... You know, start with something that you love or a figure or a writer whom you already admire and kind of work your way back into their own intellectual formation. That could be a, a musician. That could be a painter. That could be a poet. That could be a novelist. But think through. I, I think that's just incredibly enriching to try to work your way into. How did, how did George Eliot become such a great writer? Who, who were the contemporaries that she was engaging? With who was she in conversation with? Who was she reading? We actually have her notebooks and her commonplace books. She called them her her mines for her work, like she was mining this material for for later refinement. And in a way, you know, a favorite thinker or artist or figure can become a kind of syllabus for you. It can can become an, an inspired nodal point for you to move in other directions and think about their influences as well as the people. Who succeeded them? Who have responded to George Eliot or Emily Dickinson or James Baldwin or, or whomever you're you're picking up on? But I think that's a good way to to kind of structure a, a reading or a series of conversations is start with something that you love and then work back to their roots and then think about their kind of branches that that emerge out of them.
0: No, that's a fun one. We we do a series on the site called the Libraries of Famous Men, where we mm-hmm. we find people. So we've done like Bruce Lee, we've done Jack London. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting because like I th- I think oftentimes when people this is, I don't know what this quote that I heard from somewhere. I can't remember where it was, but it was like, don't read your, your mentors Like don't read what, don't read your mentor's books, read what your mentors read or something mm-hmm. like that. And it's the same idea. Like you can really figure out the people you admire by
1: reading what they read and form their mind. I love it. And it's just a, it's an incredibly enriching experience. It doesn't take away from, from those people. Mentors or those people whom you admire, it it makes them all the more fascinating, and, and it makes their achievement all the more intriguing because they weren't making up something from nothing; they were synthesizing an amazing uh, series of books and figures and inspirations that preceded them, and they and they made them fit for their moment. They they translated them or they they turned them into the honey that they needed to have for their particular moment in time, their task at that in their lives.
0: Well, Scott, this has been a great conversation. Is there some place people can go to learn more about the book and your work?
1: sure i i teach at rhodes college in memphis so i'm on the rhodes college website there i also am the director of the pierce shakespeare endowment at rhodes and we do a lot of free public programming some of which is has been online or or been broadcast online so that's available to everyone and then i also have a website scott that describes my books fantastic well scott newstock thanks for your time it's been a pleasure thank you brett this is a real pleasure
0: My guest today was Scott Newstock. He's the author of the book, How to Think Like Shakespeare. It's available on amazon.com. You can find out more information about his work at his website, scottnewstock.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash renaissance thinking, where you can find links to resources where we delve deeper into this topic. or family member you think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time is Brett McKay. Reminding you not only to list the O M podcast, but put what you've heard into action.